Hey listeners, I'm Adam, and this is Can I Ask You a Question, a podcast where anyone is welcome to join me for an episode to share their thoughts on a topic of their choice. I'm looking forward to hearing new opinions and perspectives, and hopefully becoming a bit more open-minded along the way. If you're interested in joining me for a future episode, feel free to check out the sign-up link in this episode's description. This episode is brought to you by the Everyday App. Technically, this is an ad, but the Everyday app has honestly been super helpful for me, and I wouldn't partner with a company if I didn't genuinely believe in the product. So, what does the app do? It basically helps you track your habits so that you can see your progress over time. There's a common business saying, what gets measured gets managed. Like I said, it usually applies to businesses, keeping track of things like their sales and customer satisfaction, but I think it's just as relevant for personal goals too. It sounds like a simple concept for an app, but I've personally found it to be super effective in helping create new habits. The app lets you add whatever habits you're currently working on building. For me right now, some of those include reviewing my to-do list each day uh, so that I stay on top of the things I want to get done. Another one is going to the gym, and another one is limiting my time on Twitter to five minutes a day. The app lets you add three habits for free, so you can see if you find it helpful. If you soon realize you want to track more than three habits, like I eventually did, the paid version lets you track unlimited habits and has other cool features, and it's pretty good value in my opinion. There's a link in the episode description that gets you 10% off. All right, let's jump into today's conversation. Hi. Hey, Abdullah. Hi, it's nice to finally meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Nice, good, good. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm good. What about what about you? Are you in the UK? I guess. No, I'm in uh, Canada. Ah, so there must be quite a time difference then. Yeah, it's uh, the morning for me, eight a.m. So you must be an early riser. <laughs> I I get up at eight. So. <laughs> yeah, normally normally I get up a bit later, but I went to bed early, so it's okay. Uh, you prepared, you prepared. No. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so have you said you've done uh, a podcast, you've been involved in one before, right, with your university? Yeah, with with my university, there's like a group called, um, the podcast called Eureka, it was about, it's just about science, we were just talking about certain science topics cool. to students, really. Cool. Which cool. is... That was cool. That was pretty cool. It was mainly on um, what was it? Like, well, the episodes I did was stem cells and neuroscience based. I did a bit of physics, but there were a lot of other episodes to do with like chemistry and stuff like uh, contraceptives and like the microbiome and stuff like that, which is pretty interesting. Like it was all interesting, but I could only get involved with a few of the episodes. Nice. And have you? Have you done any through this this matchmaker platform yet? No, this is my first this is my first one. Because nice. I made my account like I think the day before you contacted me. Oh no way. Yeah, that so it was like I was like, Whoa, well that's fast. I was like, Oh nice. <laughs> I don't know if that's a coincidence or maybe people who are new to signing up they put near the top. Oh, I don't I don't oh, know. Yeah. I don't know. How long have you been using it for? Quite a bit. Uh, I think, I think I've been using it for maybe like six months or so. Um, 
but I haven't had too many people come on the podcast through the platform, maybe like three or four. Mm. And then most of the other people are either like friends of mine or um, uh. people I found on Twitter or something like that. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. So like, how do you find someone? Do you just like look like, how do you decide this is someone I want on the podcast or something like that? Yeah, well, I go on Matchmaker. You can look based on interest. So I'll look for people mm-hmm. who who put that they have interests similar to me. So like either philosophy related or like society and culture or technology, things that I'm interested uh-huh. in. And then I'll read the person's bio yeah. and see see if if I think they would be interested in any of the list of questions that I have. And then, yeah, that's, yeah. that's why I reached out to you. Nice. Yeah. So, what gave you the idea of like doing this podcast? Because it's it's a really great idea. Like, because it's a good idea just to talk to people about a topic you're interested in. And but how did you come up with it? Because like I would have never come up with such an idea just out of the blue. So. <laughs> well, uh, I think I figured I would just. I came across a platform called Anchor, which uh, makes it easy for you to launch your podcast like super easy so i figured maybe i'll give it a try and uh i think the idea was i I like one-on-one conversations like deep Mm, yeah definitely um Mm. so and i thought it'd be an interesting way to to chat about topics that in my mind are like unclear what the right answer is so I figured maybe it'll yeah. like be a learning opportunity for me. Like I'll meet new people. Um, and I like the idea of like maybe mm. looking back on this conversation down the road and seeing how my views changed and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's actually good. I never thought of it like that, but that's true. Yeah. Yeah, that might be it might be cool to look at, you know, ten mm. ten years or more down down the line. Yeah, because I've I've done that to myself, like well not to do with podcasts, but like I've I've written a letter to myself. Oh. And I wrote like two years ago, but I'm gonna open it in ten years from that and then look to see like how have I changed in them that, 10 years like what how has my goals changed what have i have i actually like because i wrote down goals on the letter like what i want to do and like has that changed in 10 years time or am i still a very similar person to what i was 10 years ago yeah that'll that'll be interesting to see like of the goals you put down how many of them did you achieve how many of them are you like no longer interested in did you mm. did you put anything else aside from goals like um, I did like a full like three page like thing about me as a person like my my beliefs what I like my major beliefs my major goals all them kind of things like and then hopefully it'll be quite interesting to see what like if I change or not where do you get that idea from Um, I can't even remember it was like two years ago I think it was 
I think it was the idea of have you heard of like them time capsules that people sometimes do? I think yeah. I got it from that. Like I think I read somewhere that people put like certain things inside it. I think one person like some people just put toys and things like that to see how long they last. But then I remember I remember reading one person putting a letter to themselves and then I was thinking, Oh, it's a good idea. <laughs> like cool. and then this idea just got born from that and then I was like, Oh, I'll try it as well. I mean, I'm not going to bury you, but I've just got it in my room <laughs> and it's just there. <laughs> cool. Um, the, for me, the video is a little bit choppy, but I can still hear you perfectly fine. So as long as you can hear me okay, then no problem. Yeah, I can hear you fine. Okay, good. Um, any, any more questions for me before we talk a little bit about uh i guess like crispr and gene editing and the future of that technology and uh mm. antibiotic resistance just just really more about your interests like what are your main kind of interest areas yeah uh say i'm very interested in like the future uh, and what it's going to look like, how different technologies are going to impact the future, like how ink outcomes, how the technology could be used for good, how things could potentially go wrong, and how we can prevent bad outcomes. Uh, I'm interested in like the like the ethical dilemmas associated with like certain new technologies and how to navigate them. Uh, yeah, those are, those I would say are like my main interest areas. Nice. Cause I remember I listened to one of your podcasts about, um, I forgot who was with, about AI. And that was, was, it about, um, was it about Neuralink or no? Oh yeah. That's, that's, yeah. Neuralink and brain machine interfaces. Yeah. I oh, think oh, that's, that's funny. Yeah. It's, I guess it makes sense that you listen to that one because I think there's quite a bit of overlap actually with like the type of questions that I wanted to ask you or talk with you about today in terms of um, like treatment versus enhancement was one of the questions I yeah. think I asked that's, him. And that's I think a that, big question. It's like, where do you draw the line? But we'll get into that later. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks for, thanks for listening to one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, any any other questions? Um, no, not that I can think of. No? All right. Uh, well, I'll ask you kind of a similar question. I see you have a background. You went to school for, like, biomedicine, and you're interested in neuroscience. Where did, where did that interest come from? Oh, so... I can remember pretty clearly how the interest started. So it was wait, the connection's gone a bit. Yeah, strange. I think it just I came up with a thing that said connection on the table. I think it got a little bit worse. What we what we could do, mm. uh, we could try. I mean, it's not ideal, but we could try turning off video, and usually it takes more less bandwidth 
but um i'm trying to think what the alternatives are i don't know do you do you do you often have like internet issues or not not usually no because i'm looking well i'm looking at my connection and i've got three out of four bars which is strange okay. Okay. which is it, it sounds better now strange okay so i heard the question it just came up with connection unstable for a moment but yeah i'll go in so my like my interest in neuroscience started really well really like properly with a biology class i remember learning about it was actually it started with stem cells and that's how i really got into science in general it was this one class we were learning about stem cells and then just the idea of having a cell that can turn into other any other type of cell and i was like you could do so much with that like you could cure so many diseases and like if people like i because i was quite young back then i was thinking whoa you can make like arms and legs and different body parts and organs like that's going to happen and people are researching that but it, i still think it's quite far in the future that we're going to have like just organs so if someone just gets like a like you need a liver transplant here yeah, just have a liver but i feel like that will happen it's going to take time but that's where my interest in science began cool but then i i thought how do i get into this and then i started um my then I definitely did biology during college and then like how could you rest so then I did a biomedical sciences degree which I've just recently graduated from at the University of Sheffield and that that got that was like that cuz I wanted to do that course cuz it gave me a broad overview of biomedical sciences in general in like cuz I got an overview of how the body works the brain the kidneys all the different organs i also got understanding of like anatomy and then with that knowledge that's when i finally decided that it's and then during my second year i did a placement at this neuroscience lab it's called citran it's like it, it's a really like world leading neuroscience kind of department and then i did my placement there at, um in it was uh, it was looking into alzheimer's disease and in particular we were making models of the um like models of alzheimer's disease and trying to test um the role of cholesterol and how that changes and whether that can lead to the certain um like damage you get in alzheimer's disease because in alzheimer's you normally get certain types of like proteins um coming together one's called beta amyloid and that it kind of forms like sticky rubber bundles that everything else clumps to and that's one that's one of the main reasons that we think that alzheimer's disease occurs and then we were trying to see if we could model that and then and then see if we could model it and what actually causes it and then relate on the uh, people I would work with carry on working on that but that got my interest in neuroscience nice did you did you get to a conclusion while you were there on if higher cholesterol uh increases risk of alzheimers oh um cuz it's very hard to know for sure cuz we were just using cells right okay like so it's that's much different to if you were using a like an animal model or some type of or even in humans like if you were looking at it in humans but yeah we did see that 
higher cholesterol was pretty much linked to the higher like the the signs of kind of Alzheimer's disease that you see in a cell model at least. Right. But I only it was only an eight week project, so you can't do any you can't say anything for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But for me, it was mainly just a learning curve. Like it was a, it was a massive learning curve. Like learning, like I, that was the first time I was properly in a lab environment, and I loved it. And that's why I want to go back in. I want to go. I want to go into research. Yeah. So, what kind of what kind of research do you know? What kind of research you would want to do? Yeah, because um, right now I'm, I'm I've gone into a master's in neuroscience at the University of Leeds where and the good thing I like about that is it's research based so it's going to be me working with some professor or on their research for a year which is just brilliant like that's that's what I want for that's just me doing research like I can't ask for anything better really that's awesome happy for you uh so do you know? Do you, like? Do you have a a preference for for what type of research related to neuroscience? Definitely, like neurodegenerative diseases, like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and trying to see like like what I want to understand is the cause. What is the cause? Even now, after I think we discovered Alzheimer's disease around a hundred years ago, and the majority of the that these diseases we discovered at least like 80 to 100 years ago but we still don't understand what causes them like we just don't know and that's like what i want to work on hopefully to try to like because i think they're linked in some way but it's trying to find what's the link between them all because then if you can find that there's a certain pathway in the in the body that is wrong in all of them and causes a lot of the um kind of damage then if you can make a drug or some type of therapy to target that it's going to be very effective and that's what i want to look into and there are people at the university of leeds doing that sort of research so that's why i want to work with them i'm already in the process of contacting them before the course actually starts to be like i'm interested in your work can we do something nice yeah yeah my my sense with alzheimer's is that it's uh partly genetic there's a genetic component to it, but then there's also things uh, things that you do that can impact your your chances of of getting the disease, like you said, like having higher cholesterol yeah. and, and stuff like that. Is that is that fair to say that that's the general consensus as of now? Yeah, because with with Alzheimer's, with Alzheimer's disease, you have both. You have two types, really. You have the majority of people who get the type, which is called sporadic, which means you don't really, like, we don't really know what entirely causes it. It's a mix between genes and environment, like you said. And that's the major cause of most people who get Alzheimer's. And that's why, like, it's very important that they control a lot of, like, diet factors and nutrition, sleep, everything like that. But then you also get the people who, get um a gene mutation that causes the alzheimer's disease that's a a much smaller percentage of people with alzheimer's but they get it from a mutation so they'll get it 
fat, they'll get it regardless of what they do. It's better if they keep a good diet. Like it'll make the disease come on later on, but they will still get it regardless. Ah, okay. And that's for them, so people with them genetic mutations, that's where CRISPR is very useful. Because if you could find, if you can just find, oh, it's this mutation right here, we can make a, a CRISPR, like kind of therapy for it, inject it, done. They're cured, hopefully. So is CRISPR, what's your understanding of the current uses for CRISPR as it stands today? There's, that, that's, that CRISPR is, um, it's quite shocking the person who invented CRISPR still hasn't won the Nobel Prize because CRISPR can be used for, like, it's technically world-changing because it could, it could technically be used to cure so many diseases. It can be used... It already is being used in genetically modified crops, so you can make crops that, like tomatoes that are brighter, have more vitamin C, and all fruits that have like a higher vitamin content, more nutritious, grow in better, like harder environments, and and that's in use today. In certain areas, in certain yeah, areas. but it's okay. still because there's a lot of like. Like there's a lot of kind of public backlash against it, but there's also a lot of kind of like unknowns. Like we still don't know what the effects are going to be 50 years in the future of these. Like yeah, we might be doing one gene to increase the productivity, but that gene could be doing something else. Could be interacting with other proteins in the in the plant and causing something else. We don't know fully what it does, and then. Um, CRISPR, another interesting use of it is to produce fuel, especially oil, in like a more environmentally friendly way. Because what this one company is doing is they're trying to develop um, oil using algae. So the algae produce oil instead of anything. They normally produce oil. And we just increase the productivity of the algae. So like all the energy they take in higher percent of it will be used to produce oil and then you can just have farms of algae where they're just secreting oil that you collect and then people burn it in planes cars everything and we like we could because we could convert stuff that's powered on coal to using oil and carry on using it if it's environmentally friendly and it doesn't um negatively affect the environment in some way even now, um, the company, they have like a small farm, I think it's in America somewhere, where they are doing this on a small scale to see, is it feasible? Will it actually work? But if that's possible, that will help a lot of the environmental problems to do with um, oil, at least, to do with fossil fuels. Because I think it's, it's about 60% less um, CO2 is produced in the production of it. Oh. Which, which puts it on the same level as a lot of um, technologies like solar power and wind power, like in terms of the CO two emissions. So it's it's a good technology to have. So you said you're surprised that the inventor of CRISPR hasn't won a Nobel Prize yet. Do you think they haven't won one yet because? Mm. Uh, because it hasn't been used 
in in practice enough yet or what would be the reason i don't know like for sure but with um because there was someone else who won the Nobel Prize really fast called Shinya Yamanaka, who invented um, something called the induced pluripotent stem cells, which is like you can, it's the idea of taking your skin and turning that into a stem cell. So that can become any type of cell. He discovered this process and he won the Nobel Prize after like five years or something. I think it was the, like the shortest amount of time between discovery and winning a Nobel Prize. And then, but I think the same is with CRISPR. Like everyone now, scientists everywhere around the world are using it in labs. Like if if you do anything with genes normally, you use CRISPR. That's just the way it is. Like if you if you're making a cell line, you use CRISPR. Animal line CRISPR. Like it's just used everywhere. But like I think there's so many discoveries being made. It's hard for the committee to be to decide on a single thing. Like I don't, I don't really know how what they exactly look for when they're deciding on who should get it, who should not get it, and so on. Right. But the person should be happy anyway because they've, <laughs> yeah. they've invented something that's technically changed the world. Really, it will change the world. Yeah. So when when you think about CRISPR and gene edit, editing technology, uh, like how do you think about what is the way to approach it so that the the potential issues you talked about where um, maybe there's issues 50 plus years down the line, like, do you know, how is that, how is that kind of long-term concerns? How is that tackled like on developing new, new technology? Mm. With CRISPR, it's it's hard because like we still don't fully understand the effects that one change might have. Like you might change one protein, and it could have untold effects. The only way to solve that would be is if we understood every single thing, like the interactions of every single protein in the body. But that would take uh, that would take a lot longer, and we can't just wait for that amount of knowledge to be like discovered because it's going to take like a century or something. So I think the best way is we've just got to kind of think of it in the, like, is the need of this therapy more important than the, the kind of risk of any bad effects, really? Because if you know with quite high certainty that, oh, this protein causes this disease, for example, let's say sickle cell anemia, if that um, it's so sickle cell anemia is a disease where your red blood cells become like they change shape and they become more. I think it's like I can't remember, like they become more horseshoe like, which normally is like a donut, but then they become more like a horseshoe, and that means they're, in, they're ineffective, can't carry oxygen as well, and that's caused by a single mutation in a gene. But then if we could take that like switch that out we know that that would resolve the problem and it won't really have any other effect because it shouldn't because that gene's mainly only expressed in red blood cells so it shouldn't really be having an effect anywhere else so that's the main 
anything. I think we've just got to decide, like, is the is the benefits outweigh any risks that can occur? And the only way to do that, you have to take it on a case by case basis in terms of for each type of therapy. You have to you have to have like a board of scientists and ethicists and regulatory people to decide like is this worth it right so what like what areas of this interest you most Ooh. Ooh. because i'm a scientist i i kind of i'm going towards and because i'm in neuroscience as well i'm going towards the more like medical side of it but that's the main area that people really know about but the parts that people don't really think about a lot are as i mentioned earlier to do with fuels and it can also be used it could be used in i i think the actual best way it could be used is actually in genetically modified crops because that's that's a major problem and that we we are going to have increased population sizes like it, we can and foods already. There's there's less food in. There's going to be too less food to supply the amount of food that we need. So that's why I think it can be used most effectively, because so far, like I think that's where have the that's where you've got the kind of least amount of hurdles to jump over, because if you if you're putting something into a human, there's way more regulation than if you're editing a, a crop which is easier because it should be because there's less chance of any bad effects. And I think we, we know more about how the proteins interact in plants as well because it's, e it's easier to manipulate a plant. Simpler. You can organism. do a lot more. Yeah, like with, with organisms, like there's sometimes when you, you change this one protein and then the organism dies at the age of like two days. So you can't, you can't figure out what caused it. You just... No, this protein is very important, but that's all you know about it. With plants, you can do a lot more. Also, because there's less regulation, it's easier to put stuff in. Like, we already have genetically modified crops. Say that again. Sorry? The world, really, I think. And we already have genetically modified crops. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know which crops exactly are being genetically modified, but like certain companies are even trying to change the content of crops to make them like increase the oil content of seeds, for example, and so on to make like them healthier. Yeah, I saw I saw an article a while back that. Uh, I, f I found really interesting and surprised me. And it was pretty much saying, you know, per the person who has saved the most, who's credited with like saving the most lives ever is someone who developed, I can't remember their name or exactly what it was, but they developed something that modified rice, I think, to make it more nutritious. Mm. And they're credited Whoa. with saving like more than a billion lives or something, something insane. Yeah. I'll, I'll see if I can look it up now. That's why I was saying that 
I, that's why I think crops, like genetically modified crops, is where CRISPR will have the greatest effect because everyone eats. So any like any change you do in the foods that billions of people eat around the world is going to be a much higher like benefit to it. Yeah. So the guy, the person's name is Norman Borlaug. He he's won the Nobel Prize, and uh, what does it say? The father of the Green Revolution is credited with saving over a billion lives worldwide from starvation. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what he did. Let's see. Led the introduction of high yielding varieties combined with modern agriculture production techniques. Uh, oh, he developed semi-dwarf, high-yield, disease-resistant wheat varieties. So wheat, not rice. Then. Yeah, sorry, not rice, wheat. Uh, but either one would be, I think, pretty high. Because it's also used by, I think, billions of people around the world. Yeah. Like it's a staple, wheat and rice. So, oof. and yeah. like that's just in one crop. Imagine if we could do that for everything. Like, if you could, and also like there's so many deficiencies. Like I think it's like two billion people are deficient iron. But imagine if you could put iron in wheat and other crops and like rice, and then people would be fine. You wouldn't have all these deficiencies. That's the that's the leading cause of diseases worldwide. Is people not have malnutrition not getting yeah. the right amount of vitamins and minerals yeah so i saw i was listening to something recently i can't remember exactly what it was but the person was saying you know they're surprised that gmos gmo foods get so much pushback considering you know how much benefits they they have and they were saying they don't they don't think there's any like known cases of gmo foods actually you know hurting anyone so like what's what's your view on why is it because it's a new technology that it gets a lot of concern and pushback that's what i think is the reason because it's a new technology like yeah. pe people are and there the might be like it's like have uh, have you heard of the what was it the vaccine like the people are against vaccines yeah that all started from one paper published like 50 years ago to do with the vaccines and to do with the vaccines causing autism. And it's because the guy, he put vaccines in people with autism already. And then he said it caused autism, but they already had the condition. But it was, and then people who were already against vaccines supported that paper and that spread it all. But that's the thing, I think it's just, it's inaccurate information is the main thing behind it because like I, I haven't seen like a paper anywhere being published talking about GMO crops causing any diseases or any kind of health problems. There's really only benefits for them as long as they're only genetically modified to make them like better in terms of disease resistance or, or something like that or increased um, vitamin or protein content or something like 
like some benefit. Like, yeah, you could also genetically modify it to make it worse, but I don't see someone who's going to try to do that because it's not really good for them. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I was going to say, it's, it's interesting what you said about the anti-vaccine starting from an article that, uh, or a paper that yeah. is uh, inaccurate or misleading. Mm. But that, that's normally where these kind of things normally start from. It's one like inaccurate piece of information or some kind of wrong experiment, and then other people build on that, and then it just spreads. And then once it spreads, it's a lot harder to stop people because people believe in that concept or whatever that result was. In terms of like CRISPR and gene editing, I saw one of the one of the concerns out there was that if if it's expensive to start and only wealthy people can afford it, then maybe it creates more uh, more of a divide between the rich and the poor. I don't know if you have any thoughts on how big of a concern that would be. I guess, to me, that's that could be any new technology is going to be expensive at start, and yeah. But I think that's the case with all new technologies. They're always expensive in the beginning. Like, like I remember, I can't remember when I read this, but it was to do with calculators. In Germany, I think it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago, a calculator was about £300. And now it's, it's a what? It's like £5 for a calculator. And three hundred pound back then was also a lot more money. It's more like five, six hundred pound now. So that's a insane amount of money when you think about it. You're spending on a calculator, which is just something to do with like simple mathematical calculations. So it's just it's the same with many of these technologies. I feel like it will get a lot cheaper once more people start using it. Yes, in the beginning it'll be either rich people or you'd have to get a lot of funding from the government. But eventually, it will become cheaper. I don't know to what exact level, but it, it definitely will get cheaper. Yeah, I agree with you. Like over time, generally, all new technology, the cost comes down, mm. and and the majority of people can afford it, and then the majority of people benefit. I think maybe the concern is when when people talk about enhancement. Uh, so whether that's like, let's say IQ, for instance, if you can, if you can, uh, figure out what genes are responsible for people's intelligence, then I've heard like some concerns that, you know, if wealthy people have first access to the technology, this could be one where these people get such a head start, um, Uh. other people can't catch up. I don't I don't know how much of a concern it really is, but that's one I've heard. I don't think that's much of a concern because things like like traits like intelligence or I don't know like um, I think skin co- even stuff like skin color and the amount of hair you have in your body and stuff like that that is affected by so many different 
genes. Like for IQ, I think it's hundreds. Like we know these hundreds of different genes have smaller effects on your IQ, but like we we literally right now we can't even change one gene with like ninety percent accuracy. So how do you expect us to change a hundred genes with that amount of accuracy? It's just not possible. And I don't I don't feel like it will be. Or if it is, no, I just I, I don't think it will be possible. So far, I don't think out, that it, if it, yeah. Because yeah. I, I don't think like IQ is something that will be able to change in terms of with gene editing. Yeah, you then then people should be getting worried with um, people like exercising and eating healthy to improve the IQ because that has a greater effect than what gene therapy would do on your IQ. Yeah. Uh, so we talked about, you know, when you like these, you know, CRISPR and gene editing, it has the potential to alleviate a lot of suffering in the, in the form of various diseases. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, and I know you mentioned, you know, we have, we have boards and panels that you know, make decisions on, on when to introduce things. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just curious, like, do you, I'm curious if you have a view on the state of progress and like, if it's being slowed too much because of con- the concerns about, you know, risks about introducing new technologies and the impact down the line like with this, when you look at the, the the speed at which these technologies are being introduced, you have a view on if you're like happy with it, if you think it's moving a little too quickly, a little too slowly. With CRISPR, have you heard the story of um, the, like there was a person in China who CRISPR edited yep yeah, two kids. Yeah, like that's like and people didn't know about it, right? Yeah, like parents never knew and government never knew. Like government were like, no, don't like, as in, in in the regulations, it was against the law. He did it by himself, technically, without like following any rules. But like, what's stopping someone else from doing that? That's the that's why we need regulations, and that's why I think we need to slow. Like, we need to carry on doing the research on CRISPR to find the therapies, but at the same time we need to have discussions about the exact laws that need to be put in place, not just in a country, but internationally, because it's going to be an international thing. Because even if you make laws in the UK or in Canada or anywhere in America, that you can't use, you can only use CRISPR for these certain diseases that are life-threatening. But people could just travel to a different country and get therapy for whatever they want it for. In a travel country where it's, the laws don't apply, that's why you need national laws and an international law laws as well, which will make it a lot more like, harder for someone to actually do this. or technically impo- well, You want to make it so hard that it's technically impossible for someone to, to do CRISPR technology because in the case of, I, forgot, I think his name was He Jinghua or something like that, the person who, the Chinese scientist who 
um, use CRISPR on these two two kids, as in when they were in the em when they were embryos, and they actually looked into the um, what the CRISPR actually did, where it cut the DNA and did the changes, and they found that it actually never did what he thought it should have done. So he had made a mistake. So it actually changed the DNA at a random other site in the in wow. the genome, not where he wow. actually thought he did it. So we don't know what that's going to do to them. Like it has un it, it has unknown effects. So he's irreversibly in some way changed these two kids' lives. Wow. And it could do nothing. It could give them some disease. We don't know. Like that's the case. I, I, the main thing we need is, I think, a, sl a slow, not a slowdown, just more debate around the exact laws. And to do that, you need everyone to get involved. You can't just have scientists d discussing it. You have to have like a, an international group of science policy people, scientists, politicians as well, because they they represent the public. And you also need the public involved. Like to give their opinion and what they think should be the laws around this, because there's no point scientists saying, "Oh yeah, we should have these." Like it should be should be fine to do it in all these diseases, and then the people don't want that. Cause they, they think it's it's wrong in some ways, right? And it also asks the question: When is it because when's it going too far? Like what when something life threatening and when's it just you wanting to enhance your own body because like the certain like i'm trying to think of examples now but it's hard to think of one that's in between life-threatening and enhancement yeah i think i think most people i think would hopefully agree that the life-threatening diseases should be highest priority mm. and then once you figure those out you can move to other ones will become higher priorities um so i know i've heard some concern around like for instance a covid19 vaccine and maybe this is just anti-vaccine people like you talked about who are misinformed but like is there any merit in the argument that okay if a vaccine comes out and is rolled out to everyone i mean it's only going to have like a couple years let's say of research and experimentation yeah. into it like i guess the question is how how can we know that it's not going to cause issues 10 20 years from now people who get the vaccine mm -hmm. i think that's the case with that's the case with all vaccines like all drugs really like yeah you only do the, the clinical trials normally only last for a few years maximum like right. five i think it's five years normally so right. it could have effects long term but that's very unlikely it's very rare especially with the vaccines because if you if you look at the vaccines that we've developed so far well they side effects they aren't like there aren't really serious that many serious side effects from the vaccines and if there are they're very rare or they or, and therefore it clearly doesn't affect like the benefits clearly outweigh the risk and I think that'll be the same for COVID. As long as the side effects aren't too bad, or the, if there are any bad ones, they're very rare, 
it should be fine to put in place because the benefits of COVID is huge. Like if you could get vaccine for it, it's it's gonna help. Like that will allow us to return to normal if it's an effective vaccine. Do you do you know Abdullah how the clinical process, clinical research process has evolved over the past few decades or a hundred years and like how it might continue to evolve and get better it's it's evolved massively like like if you look back even 50 years ago there weren't laws around um like having um testing the effect of a drug in pregnant people literally like it was if a drug was found to be like working like if they tested it on a hundred males, and they found, oh, it works. It, it helps this disease. They don't, they don't test it on any pregnant people to see if it has an effect on the child. Wow. That's why, uh, if you you might have heard the case of thalidomide. Uh, sounds familiar. Say it again. Thalidomide. It was um, it was a drug used for morning sickness, which is a disease, um, like a kind of illness that pregnant people, com- pregnant women, commonly get. Yeah. And this this drug that they gave thalidomide for this uh, morning sickness, it treated it. But then they found that in the ch- in the ch- many of the children, it gave them like deformities in some in terms oh. of lost limbs. They couldn't walk. They couldn't. They never had hands or arms. Stuff like that. And then after that that happened, that caused a massive uproar. And then the like environment was changed, so the rules are put in place that when you test drugs, you have to also test the effect on um, pregnant women to make sure it doesn't affect the child. And from that time, there's been very strict laws to say that you have to test it. And that's why I think they also they might also test it on pregnant animals as well beforehand to make sure it doesn't affect um, the offspring from that animal. Oh, interesting. So as far as you know, thalidomide wasn't tested on pregnant women during the clinical yeah. research process? Yeah, and then it got banned for being used because they found out it's not it's not good. It's, it, the side effects are way too bad. Yeah. And it's like the same with them. I think it was like even, I think it was in the 1930s or 40s in like America, which was seen as I think this is similar in the UK as well. Drugs were only tested for smell and taste. Like, no, no, not drugs, vitamins were only tested for smell and taste. So if they, they, and loads of vitamins had like random other stuff added to them. And then they found that then some case happened where people, I think they took this vitamin that was meant to be, I think it was vitamin C, and they found out it had some compound in it that technically, I think it killed like 80 people. And then they, they tracked it down to this vitamin, I think supplement or something liquid. And then they were like, oh, we need to ban that. And that's when the rule came in place that you actually need to test. You can't put, you actually need to find out if the contents of the, what else you put in the liquid or the drug you're giving have any toxic effects like people think that people take that for granted now but back not too long ago that wasn't the case and any any idea or any thoughts on how it might 
the clinical research process might change? Like, do you think, do you think uh, 50 years from now we'll look back on the current state of the clinical research process and also think it's crazy? Like the way we look back 50 years from today and we look back yeah. and we, do you think it will be similar? I think I think so, and I think COVID has made us realize that. Because in some cases, I think you don't need to have like as long a period in terms of drug development and drug testing. Because like with COVID, they've sped everything up, and so far it hasn't seemed too bad. But we only know for sure when a successful vaccine comes in place and it doesn't have that bad side effects. But if such a vaccine does come, then it's gonna like beg the question that do we actually need such long testing periods in some cases? Like, could we not shorten it or like, do them at the same time? Because very many times in drug testing, you've got to do the first. You've got to find the compound, then test it in cells, then test it in animals. Then you move into a small number of patients then into healthy then no first you move into a small number of healthy patients to see if it doesn't have any bad effects on them then into a small number of actual actual um, people suffering from the disease and then into larger clinical trials but like eventually they might have they might allow people to do it at the same time you could combine the cell and animal testing at the same time that would reduce the time frame like a year or two and then you could maybe do some of the testing in patients at the same time as well and i think if we do get a successful vaccine that will change definitely because that is a major problem with um drug drug discovery now is because testing is so long companies have to spend insane amounts of money on it so there'll be therapies that a company discovers but it takes too long to put, get it into the clinic and costs too much. So they haven't done that process because if they do do that process, it will cost them a billion pound. And then the cost the drug, they won't be able to, they predict they won't be able to get back that money and they won't be able to make a profit. So why should a company put all that effort into a drug and then they can't make a profit from it? They're making a loss. They're not going to do it. So I know we, we only have a few more minutes. I, I want to ask you, so aside from your schooling, uh, in terms of learning more about uh, this type, like CRISPR gene editing, I know we didn't get to antibiotic resistant much, so maybe maybe in a future conversation. But like, yeah, are, there any, are, there any, are there any books or, I don't know, documentaries or articles or YouTube videos that come to mind or YouTube channels that have have that you use for learning or have framed your thinking? In terms of, do you mean for just CRISPR or for science in general? It can, it can be science more generally. Uh, because there's, I think I'll send you the link to the website. There's a this certain website that I used that I use quite often for CRISPR research. And it has a really good articles on it. It has like um it has articles on 
in terms of all the different areas that I talked about in terms of agriculture, the effects it have on medicine and explains it quite well. And then it also has like certain companies that are doing like kind of ground big breaking research in using CRISPR. But I'll send you the link to that so you can uh, hopefully upload it onto the description. And then with science in general, a common podcast I use, there's still, oh, I don't know the name here. Um, a it's called um, have you, Naked Scientists. It's by these paper, people set up in, they set up at Cambridge University. And it's, it's, it's really useful. And they've got separate sections on, like, they've got a neuroscience section, which is the main one I listen to. But they also have sections on normal science, physics, game, even gaming. Like they have separate sections on different things, but that's a very good web um, podcast. Cool, thanks. Yeah, I'll check out Naked Scientists. I just found it. That's good. Um, well, yeah, thank you so much, Abdul. It was really nice to meet you. It was uh, nice to meet you, too. This was a really nice conversation. Yeah. Uh, good luck with your your master's. I hope you get some interesting research to do. When do you start it? Um, in January. Okay. So I've, got, I've got a while. That's also because of COVID. They've had to move the, move the start date a lot later. But yeah, what, um, what about you? What have you been working on these days? Uh, well, the pod, the podcast I really enjoy. I try to do one a week, but yeah. in my my day job, uh, not science related. I work in uh, in like in in the business business world in uh, yeah marketing and strategy and stuff like that. Nice. Yeah. Well, it was a nice conversation. Hopefully, I can come on again another time. Yeah, you're welcome. You're nice welcome any. To you. Yeah, nice talking to you too. You're welcome on any time. Thanks. Thanks. Okay. Well, see you. See you, Bye. Bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Can I Ask You a Question? If you liked this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you left a rating on iTunes or Google Podcasts or wherever you're listening from so that more people like you can discover it. Also, it'd be super helpful if you'd be willing to leave some feedback on any ideas you have for improving future conversations using the link in this episode's description. Thanks again and see you next time.